Well, good morning. Uh, how many knew there was a turkey hunt last night? Anybody know what that is? Great time. If you've never driven for a turkey hunt, you're missing out on a great time. I, I did not find out last night, though, who won the turkey hunt. Does anybody know who won the turkey hunt? Wait a, wait a minute. What's this? Oh, my team won the turkey hunt. <clears throat> All right, there are, just so you know, there are, I'll just set this right here. Not, you know, it's sacrilegious, so we won't do that. I don't want to get elder slips from uh, different people about that. Now, there are some sore losers. I just want to list a couple of them. <clears throat> I won't. Their sin is before them. And uh, <clears throat> go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10. <clears throat> Now, for the last, oh, probably 20 to 22 weeks, we have spent uh, this time since, like I said, probably around the first part of May, looking at the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is an awesome book that has the sole purpose of telling us that Jesus Christ is God. And so we've been spending this time looking at this idea of God in 3D, Jesus coming in human flesh to be our Savior. And we've taken that idea of 3D and we've broken it down into three dimensions, if you will. First of all, we looked at different descriptions of Jesus Christ. And now we are in the third, uh, fourth part of the declarations of Christ, the statements that Jesus made. And at the beginning of the new year, we'll be focusing in on the different demonstrations of the power of God, His miracles that we've seen. Now, these declarations, as I was telling you about last week, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, called them the metaphors of the Messiah. In each of these statements, John records, there's seven of them, where Jesus says, I am, and then he continues on with the statement. We learn that Jesus Christ was the bread of life. We learn that he was the light of the world. We learned a couple weeks ago that he was the sheep gate or the door to the sheep pen. And we began to begin to realize the importance of what Jesus is saying in each of these statements. Now, last week I was going to preach about Jesus being the Good Shepherd, but God had some other ideas. And as I've learned this past week, that was exactly what many of you needed to hear. But one thing I didn't share with you was the answer, if you will. I gave you a simple application. Get as close to Jesus as possible. Read His Word. Start praying. Start getting involved in the local church. But I want to spend some time focusing in on the second part of that. Last week I told you that the key part of this text is John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And I began my sermon last week telling you about my time as a junior higher going into high school and the struggles that I had, believing that I was good for nothing. And I told you about all the issues that I had, and that resonated in the hearts of many here, saying, I feel the same way. And I began to tell you about a youth pastor from this church that came, took me out, and shared those words with me and said, no more should the devil have that opportunity. No more should the issues of this world fall flat on your shoulders. But he says, Jesus declares something at the end of that. Though the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy the thief we hear about, we know that Jesus comes to give us life and to give it to us in all fullness or abundantly as the new international... Or new, um, American Standard tells us. But what does that mean? Well, as a teenager, when I heard those words for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a chance to make something of myself. As a 14-year-old with not much going on in my life, 
for the first time after John Avery shared those words with me, my heart began to open up. And what, G, uh, what John began to share with me is the goodness of our God, what we've sung about this morning, that God loves me, that God desired for me to have an impact in my community. Now, from the first part of the story, if you were here last week, you heard there wasn't much good. But I will tell you, John shared with me an idea. He says, not only will Jesus give you life and give it to you in the fullness, jam-packed, pressed down, He's going to give it in all abundance. He said, but He's going to lead you to that. And He says, because the next verse says, I am the Good Shepherd. And within that, here we have a compare and contrast. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to, have, to give life, and He says, I am the Good Shepherd. And I will tell you, I am a testimony of a life changed. Because it was amazing not having much impact in those first 14 or 15 years. But it was amazing what transpired after that. Because God did give me life in the fullness. That doesn't mean that everything went great. I didn't become all of a sudden popular. I didn't all of a sudden become good looking. Okay, you can see that. All right, amen. It's amazing. I'm going to go there. All right. And yet God began to change my life. I told you about the issues that I had with my brother and living in his shadow. I want to share just a couple things that happened in the years beyond that. I had the opportunity because I became, I became faithful to God. Just as my youth pastor said, he says, you get as close to God as possible. You get as close as you can, read his word, pray. And that's what I began to do. And it was amazing how God opened up doors for that. I had enough courage because of the Spirit of God that I started a Bible study in our school. Kids were getting saved at Hinkley Big Rock. It wasn't enough then that I had that opportunity, but we went to a thing called SEMP, a thing that uh, teenagers go to in the city of Chicago. It was then. I think it's in Wheaton now. 1,400, 1,500 students, and we met at Moody Memorial Church for a big um, outreach event where we'd be able to invite our friends to come be a part of it. I was asked to preach at 16, 17 years of age, to preach at a historic church. People like Billy Graham, D.L. Moody, the big guns have only preached there. And they asked a teenager of all people to preach in front of my peers. You want to talk about life in abundance? I was a snot-nosed kid and God gave me opportunity after opportunity. That wasn't enough. I didn't think that I was going to be anything big, that I was ever going to fall in love. And you guys know the end of that story. God gave me a beautiful wife. One that loves me, knows my insecurities, knows my issues. And God has given me two wonderful children as a result of that. God wants to give you life in the abundance. He took me from being a, a teenager here in this church and has brought me where? To be able to proclaim the word. It's amazing. On the day of my graduation, we had a terrible storm. And I was going back to my old way saying, here we go again. I can't even have a good graduation party. Oh, woe is me. No one came because, well, there was a storm. And then at the end of that storm, in the eastern sky, not one, but two rainbows formed. Beautiful, bigger than I've ever seen before. And my father came, and he's always got great words of wisdom. He put his arm around me, and he says, I want to tell you something. I know you've lived in your brother's shadow for a long time. He was Elijah. He got the one portion. He says, I want to tell you something. I don't know what God's going to do, but there's a double portion in store for you. And I will tell you, my brother did great things for the Lord, but greater things am I doing for the Lord. Now, I want to be where he's at. He's worshiping the Lord today, face to face with our Savior. 
But God has allowed, when we follow the Good Shepherd, God opens up doors of opportunity. Now, does that mean all of you will be preachers? No. Does that mean all of you will find the love of your life? No. But God has a plan for you, and I don't know what that plan is. I've shared my testimony of what that plan looked like for me. But it involves following the shepherd. A couple hundred people last week stood up and said that the devil was wreaking havoc in their life. There were trials in your life that you could not face alone. And you stood up in in a declaration of saying, God, I need your help. Now today, you learn where that help is found. Open your outlines, if you will, to to the passage there in your Bibles to John chapter 10. And we see four important understandings because if we want to live lives of abundance, there are four things that we must understand. You see, when we explore John 10, four key things come up. First of all, we see a profound revelation. A profound revelation. Look at verse 10 and 11 this morning of John 10. It says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And then what does he say in the verse 11? I am the, fill it in, the good shepherd. Now Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't say, all right, I have the way to abundant life. People of Village Bible Church, I have the way to joy and contentment. Or I have the way to heaven. He doesn't say anything like that and leave us hanging. What he says is, all right, I can give you life in all the fullness. I can give you life in all abundance. And he says, but not only can I give it to you, but I'm going to guide you every step of the way. He says, I'm going to give you a life of fullness. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the guide. I'm the one who will get you there. Now, throughout the scriptures, we see this idea of shepherd and sheep. In fact, the word shepherd and sheep is found in the scriptures over 200 times. Write that somewhere in there. 200 times the Lord thought it be good in his inspired word to have the word shepherd and sheep in his text. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus and even God the Father through the prophets shared that we as people were like sheep. All throughout the scriptures, we are called sheep. Now, why would Jesus call us sheep? We don't act like sheep, right? Well, there's four descriptions of sheep from the New Testament. We learn as we study the New Testament, in fact, even the sheep today, four key attributes of them. First of all, sheep are dirty. Write that down. Sheep are dirty. Now, if you say, well, no, sheep are white. They're supposed to be clean. If you've ever gone and seen a sheep, you will see how dirty they really are. After they uh, get washed up and cleaned up, it's amazing how different they can look. I've gone to, uh, a couple of years ago, went to a 4-H fair down in Sandwich. And these kids were bringing out their little lambs out to be a part of it. And they've cleaned them. They've sheared them just beautifully. I'll tell you what, the difference between a regular sheep and what they were showing are completely different. Sheep by nature are dirty. Next we see they're dependent. They're dependent. Just write that somewhere in your outline. They're dependent. What I mean by that is the sheep can't do life on their own. They need someone to help them. Thirdly, we see that they're disobedient. They're disobedient. By nature, sheep are disobedient animals. They wander. They will find themselves wandering all over the place, not listening to where they need to be. And finally, my favorite, they're dumb. I love it when the alliteration works that way. They're dumb. Okay? Now, how does that fit us today? As an unbelieving world, as unbelieving men and women, we are dirty because of sin. 
Because of the sin of wandering away from our shepherd, we find ourselves in a place of utter turmoil because of the dirt that is on us. Next, we're dependent. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, let me exegete that in the Greek. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? I don't know what the Greek says on that, but I would think the English works good. There's nothing we can do apart from God. We are completely dependent on Him. We're disobedient. The Bible says all like sheep, all like all we like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. We choose our own way. We say, you know what, I don't want to go the way of the shepherd, so I will go my way. And we're disobedient. And finally, we're dumb. We're dumb. Why is that? Because we've got a God that we've sung about this God that we have. And as believers, we come in on Sunday morning, you, me, every one of us here, and we sing about the greatness of our God. We raise our hands. We cry out to God and say, how great are you, God? And in our stupidity, we walk out of this place and we choose to worship other things than the God of the universe. We're done by nature. We are just like sheep. Jesus, or I'm sorry, the Scriptures tell us that in great detail. Isaiah 40, 10 and 11 says, See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power, and His arms rule for Him. See, His reward is with Him. His recompense accompanies Him. Verse 11 says, He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those who have young the other prophet, Jeremiah 31.10, tells us, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. Not only God the Father declares that he's a shepherd, but we see that Jesus declares it, or is prophesied to be a shepherd as well. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 for a moment. Matthew chapter 2. If you're in the Gospel of John, move to the left. And you'll find, right before you get to the Old Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Here we go. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Jesus, in fact, is prophesied to be the shepherd. Now, if you want to turn back to John for a moment, we're going to go back to that. John chapter 10. Now, Jesus declares himself in this text that he is a shepherd. Twice, in fact, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, Within each of these I am statements, we need to understand again, just as, excuse me, with the bread, with the gate, and with the door, uh, gate and uh, the light, that these are all found in emphatic tense. So what in reality, what Jesus is saying, write this somewhere at the top of your outline, just somewhere so you understand it. In the Greek, it would be something like this. I, even I, and only I, am the good shepherd. I, even I. I, and only I, am the good shepherd. That's how it would have been originally written. Now what Jesus is saying again, just like in past weeks, is that He alone is the shepherd. There are no other shepherds in His 
uh, ranking, if you will. If there was a BCS, if you will, ranking of shepherds, Jesus would be number one, and you wouldn't have had to play yesterday against the number two. He, by far, is the greatest. Uh, can I get an amen from Bruce Wyrock? We're not even going to go there, okay? Big Ohio State fan over there. What Jesus is revealing to us in this text is that He is God. He is God. Because by saying that He is the Good Shepherd, there's one or two things you can render Him. Either God or a blasphemer. And we're going to see that people were divided about what He said because some said, yes, He must be God. And others said, you know what? He's blaspheming God and we must do something to stop Him. But we see now, for the fourth time, Jesus declared Himself as a Messiah. But He adds a word to this title. Last time He said He was the light of the world and the bread of life. And He said He was the gate or the door. But this time He adds a word. He says, I am the good shepherd. I want to hit on that word for a moment. Now when we read in our English Bibles, we miss an incredible detail and depth to the statements that He makes. Now, first of all, in the original Greek, we would have read the statement differently. Now, I told you, I, even I, only I am the good shepherd. But we would have seen something else change. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he would have, in fact, said, I am the shepherd, the good one. I am the shepherd, the good one. Instead of, in fact, saying, I am the good shepherd. Now, he could have used two words. The writers could have used two words when he said the word good. The first word is agathos. Agathos. We get the name Agatha from that. It means the good one. If you've ever known anybody named Agatha, that means the good one. What that literally means is they are morally good. They're clean. It would be something like saying, um, Tim is a good basketball player. Nothing great, but he's good. He can put the basket into the hoop and he does all right. Or, um, you know, you're a good trumpet player or a good guitar player. You know, not anything great, but good, generic. It's a generic term, agathos. The second word that could have been used is the word kalos. This is the word that is used when Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. The kalos shepherd, if you will. Now what this word means is not doesn't mean generic in the sense of being good or morally good, but kalos literally means the preeminent one, the exclusive one, the excellent one. He is greatest in every way and every feature. He is the lovely one, the beautiful one. So when we say Jesus is the good shepherd, we're not saying, well, yeah, as shepherds come, he's, he's pretty good. No, we are saying he's the preeminent shepherd. He is the one that is greater than all shepherds. Now, twice in a couple verses, we hear Jesus use this word, this kalos, this good shepherd. Now, if we were to be listening to Jesus this morning, we would have been thinking about one shepherd as Jesus would have been sharing that. And what, that shepherd, what was that shepherd's name? Anybody from Israel? David. They would have thought of the shepherd David. They had the Psalms. They had the recordings of First and Second Kings and the Chronicles and First um, and Second Samuel. They would have known those stories. They would have known their greatest king in the history of Israel was a shepherd. They would have heard how David had slaw, uh, um, slayed a uh, not only a giant but a bear and a lion for his sheep. And they would have said, "Wait a minute, David is the preeminent shepherd." He's the greatest shepherd. But yet Jesus says, all those shepherds that have come before me, I am greater than them. He shows his supremacy of being the good shepherd even beyond the great King David. Now, we don't just see that with David. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus says that he's greater than Moses. 
And in fact, in John chapter 8, we see that even before Abraham, Jesus says, I am. He's greater than all the patriarchs. And I could have done one of two things. It could have excited the heart of the Jewish people in that day, saying, here's the Messiah. But others would have been really upset because they would say, wait a minute, that's our Hall of Fame. Abraham, David, Moses, those are our big hitters. Those are our cleanup guys. And you're saying you're better than them? That's what Jesus is saying. He is Kalos, the preeminent one. But why is that? Well, we see three reasons. First of all, he he proves his excellence by his coming. By his coming. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus speak about the proper way shepherds are supposed to come and get their sheep. Now, we remember that the first part of John chapter 10, we get the context of a sheep pen that is in the city where many flocks would be brought at night. Shepherds would come in and retire for the evening and drop their flocks off to a big uh, pen in the middle of a village or a city. And every morning they would come back and they would go to the gate and they would call for their sheep to take them back out to pasture. Now remember, what Jesus says is anyone who tries to climb over a wall or go some other way into the pen is a robber or a thief. But Jesus says, I go to the watchman, the one standing uh, by the door, and he says, I call out my sheep. Jesus is the preeminent one, the excellent one, because of how he came. He came at just the right time, Galatians 4.4 says, at just the right place with just the right purpose to unveil the right plan. And Jesus never veered left or right from that. He came, as the scripture tells us, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what He came to do. He's a preeminent one because He's our Savior. Next we see that it involves a proper calling. A proper calling. Verse 3 it says, The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Again, this is that idea that every morning the shepherd would come, go to the gate, and we begin calling. Now, I'm not sure how they would call them. He says he knows them by name. Maybe he had names for each of the sheep. We know that within the history of first century Palestine, that shepherds named their sheep. So maybe he started just calling out names, Rich and uh, Steve and Matt, and just started calling them by names. I'm not sure what the names were, but he called them out with whatever call that he had. And every morning they would follow him out to the pasture. He would lead them out. But he had to have a distinct calling. I read in uh, an article from the Sydney newspaper of a man in Australia who was arrested and charged with stealing some sheep. His uh, neighbor had taken him to court saying, those were my sheep and they weren't to be his anymore. But he claimed emphatically that these sheep were his own and he had been missing them for some days. It got so bad that the case was taken to court. And it was brought before a judge. And the judge had no way of understanding. He says, how am I to determine whose sheep these really are? You're both sheep herders, shepherds. So how do I know who they are? And he went home and he began to think and process and do some studying. And he learned from this text through a paper that was written by an Australian Bible professor that sheep listened to the voice of their shepherd. And he came in all excited, and the next day sat behind the bench, and he says, All right, before I have my ruling this morning, I want us to put the sheep into the room with us. And people are like, What are you doing? And he says, Now I want uh, outside both of these shepherds. 
And the first one was supposed to give his call. He was to call them. And the only thing that the sheep did was shudder in fear. And then he said the next one was to come out. This man that had said they were his the whole time. He walked outside and gave some amazing distinctive call. And the sheep began to walk out of the courtroom. The judge said at that moment, case dismissed. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. We hear the voice of the shepherd. But it involves one other thing, and that is a proper command. A proper command. It says he calls his own sheep by name, and then he says he leads them out. Once he comes to the door of the sheep pen and calls his sheep out, he proves that he is the good shepherd. Not because he has the right call. That's only part of it. But that when he leads, they follow. For you to be a shepherd, you must have one important thing, and that is a flock. You cannot be a shepherd without a flock. You can call yourself a shepherd. You can put your uh, license plate, Shepherd One. You can uh, put bumper stickers on, American Association of Shepherds. You can do whatever you want. But if you don't have a flock, you ain't no shepherd. But it's more than that. You can't just be a shepherd with a flock. There's a lot of people that have a lot of people that just kind of are around them. But the big important element of being a shepherd is that you have a flock that follows. You have to have a flock that follows. Jesus says, when I command them to go, when I lead them out, they follow. They follow wherever I go. Now, we need to understand, a shepherd was not one who would drive the sheep. He was not a rancher, if you will, herding and beating the sheep to go this way and the other way. But he would just walk and they would follow. And every once in a while, he'd play a note on his horn or call them by name to bring them back, take his staff or his rod that he was holding, tap them back into place, make sure that they were where they needed to be, but they would follow him. But how did he get them to follow him? Secondly, we see this morning it involves a passionate relationship. A passionate relationship. You see, Jesus would call them out to the green pastures and they would follow, but it involved a relationship. Now, how is it that a shepherd has the ability to command the attention of a bunch of dumb, disobedient animals? Did he go to shepherding school, the University of Shepherding? Did he do that? Did he go to the, uh, you know, shepherd tech? You know, that didn't happen. So how did he do it? It involved a relationship. Most sheep were given to a young shepherd while they were young. A shepherd would be giving a a group of young lambs to begin to grow with. So as he grew, the lambs grew. And he'd be able to grow with them and know them. That's why he would name them as they were enter into his flock. But he would call them by name as we see. And that shows us a couple things. First of all, it shows us that this relationship involved a devotion. It involved a devotion. Look at John 10:14. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, and I want you to underline this word, I know, underline know, my sheep, and my sheep, underline, know me. Two times Jesus says, I know them and they know me. Now you may say, Tim, where's the devotion in that? I don't see love or or anything more than just an understanding. Again, in our English translation, we will not see the depth of this statement, no. In the Greek, we see that the word no is the word gnosko. Gnosko. Now, this word gnosko doesn't just mean I know the facts about you. Okay? It's not just a, an, an intellectual uh, understanding of the facts about who you are. 
In fact, throughout the Scriptures, we see that this phrase, to know, means something more. In the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2, it says, You only, God is speaking to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 7.23, those that come and have performed miracles and prophesied in Jesus' name, they come before the judgment of Christ and He tells them plainly, I never knew you. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Is Jesus telling the prophet Amos that the only nation that He knew was Israel? Does Jesus, when He gets to heaven, only know those who are true, true people that are Christians, the true saved ones? Is that what he's saying? Well, let's keep looking here. Turn in your Bibles all the way to the book of Genesis for a moment. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Here in the book of John, go all the way to the beginning, hit the table of contents, and go back a little bit. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Is that, is that the NIV translation? No? New King James. All right, we got someone that's got a New King James here. Matthew, so you went there in vain. The word in the Hebrew is the word knew there. In uh, Matthew one twenty-five, it says, Joseph knew Mary, not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let me bring this up, and I don't mean to be funny, but Adam didn't all of a sudden uh, come to Eve one day, and she says, oh, by the way, I conceived a child. I'm pregnant. And Adam didn't look and say, what's your name again? I don't know you. But now I do. Joseph, at the beginning of Matthew, doesn't go to Mary, and Mary says, hey, I'm going to have a son. His name is going to be Jesus. And Joseph says, hey, you come here often. Joseph says, you come here often? I, I don't know you. What it's talking about is an intimate knowledge, a devotion for that individual. It even is used in those two contexts as a sexual term of intimacy, that they had slept together. There was a bond, a covenant bond together of intimacy. And that's what the Good Shepherd knows about us. It isn't that he just knows Tim. Okay, Tim is bald and he could lose a little weight and uh, his favorite team is the Cubs and... Uh, you know, he's the preacher of Village Bible Church. No, that is not what Jesus just knows about us. He knows everything about me, and he loves me. It is an idea of devotion. He loves me in an intimate and covenant way. And that's what the Good Shepherd loves of each of you, his sheep. But next it involves a dialogue. A dialogue. He says in our text three times the phrase that they listen or they hear his voice or listen to his voice. This shows us that there's an ongoing dialogue between the sheep and the shepherd. Now this dialogue was important. If the sheep wanted food, they needed to listen to the shepherd. If the sheep wanted water, they had to listen to the voice of the shepherd. If they wanted to stay away from trouble, they needed to be listening to the voice of the shepherd. If they didn't want to be left behind... They needed to listen to the voice of the shepherd. It created a dialogue. We, as I'm going to talk about in a couple moments, need to be listening to the voice of the shepherd as well. But it involves one more, one more thing, and that is a proper defense. A proper defense. Look at verse, uh, verse 12 and 13. 
It says, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The defense of the sheep by the shepherd is based on his devotion. You see, we could hire anybody to come in and to um, lead us as a people. You know, it's amazing that not only does that analogy or that metaphor of sheep and shepherd work with Jesus in Israel and God the Father in the nation Israel, but even in the church, the leaders of the church are called shepherds. We are under shepherds of the great shepherd of the sheep, the book of Hebrews tells us. Your elders serve as shepherds of this flock. Now, we could bring anybody into this flock, and we could say, you know what? Your job is just to take care of the business, but don't worry about the people. Just get us from point A to point B. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of churches that have those kinds of shepherds in them. But the job of a good shepherd is to defend, to be devoted, and to continually dialogue with the sheep. Now, the difference between those two is seen in the defense. A hired man is out. He's taken the flock of sheep, and he's gone out to the wilderness, He's hanging out with the sheep, and all of a sudden a a bear or a lion of some sort comes or some sort of group of robbers to come and hurt the sheep or to take the sheep away. What does the hired hand do? Hey, they ain't mine. I ain't getting in trouble with these guys. You know what? I'm not losing my life for these guys. They're someone else's. But a good shepherd says that he lays down his life for the sheep. There's the difference. The shepherd is devoted to the sheep, and he will risk life and limb for his flock. But one who is a hired man will do it for the money and do it for the good times, but when any kind of trouble comes, he's gone. We have a shepherd that defends us. Finally, we see that it involves, or thirdly, we see it involves a powerful rescue. A powerful rescue. This defense, Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 11, we see the defense of this good shepherd. And it involves a couple things. First of all, it involves a sacrifice. This rescue involves a sacrifice. Remember that the hired hand would run away from the enemy because he was unwilling to sacrifice his life. When they were out in pasture and something came, he would take off. But the good shepherd sacrifices. Now think about it for a moment. The shepherd would not sacrifice just because he would get a good name. When he was out in the wilderness, there was nobody around them. So when the animal came to take over and to destroy the flock, there wasn't a group of people saying, Go, good shepherd. Way to go. Nice defense. They didn't do that. There was nobody around. So there was no kind of badge of honor that a shepherd would get that people would say, What a great shepherd. He was by himself. And it's amazing to think even the sheep were so stupid and so and dumb that they would not be able to even give gratitude for being saved. It wasn't like the sheep came, you know, like the Serta sheep, you know, that you see on TV. They didn't talk or do anything like that. Way to go, shepherd. We love you. That's our shepherd. Can you believe he's a good-looking shepherd, isn't he? They didn't do that. They'd say, uh, you know, where's the food? Where's the water? Show us where we can lie down. The sheep are the object of the sacrifice. That's the next thing. That this involves the sheep. Nobody else is involved. No group of people, no uh, American Association of Shepherds there to give the Shepherd of the Year award. There's nothing. His whole purpose of being and living is to protect the sheep of his pasture. To protect them. 
And he does it because he loves them. It involves his sheep. Now, I want to stop for a moment. I've got a couple minutes here. And you would say, okay, Tim, you talked last week about not having abundant life. This week you say, okay, I've got the answer for abundant life. And you keep telling me about sheep and shepherds, first century Palestine, nothing about today. Well, let me take a couple moments to bring this application and then I'll give you one final point. Application is very simple. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all fallen to sin. And because of our sin, because of our willingness to pursue other things other than the Good Shepherd, we find ourselves in a heap of trouble with predators all around us. And as a result of that, whatever it may be, we are in a heap of trouble. But Jesus came. Jesus came at the worst time in our lives that He might give us life. How did He do that? He gave us life by laying down His life for you and for me. That's what He did. On the cross of Calvary, 2,000 years ago, He was the Good Shepherd. He laid down His life for the sheep by dying on the cross and spilling His perfect blood. He did that so we may have life. So the amazing thing is, is that when we as Christians find ourselves not living a life of abundance, it has nothing to do with our circumstances. Our life of abundance is found on the cross of Calvary. It's found by the spilling of His blood that changed our life. Now, does that mean you're not going to go through trials? No. Does that mean you're not going to go through temptation? No. All is still going to be there. But we have victory now. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus says, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. No matter what circumstances you're facing today, follow the Good Shepherd. He loves you. He's calling your name. The question is, are you wandering somewhere else or are you listening and following the leading of that Good Shepherd? He isn't just one of good shep- one of the many Good Shepherds. He is the only Good Shepherd, the preeminent Shepherd, the greatest of all time forever. He will be the only one. And the question is, are you following Him? As believers, it's our duty, it should be our desire to follow the Good Shepherd. We've followed the other ways of the world. We have followed the path, and it leads us down a road to destruction. If I was to ask people to get up and share testimonies of where they were before they came to know Christ, we'd hear people that are alcoholics. We'd people that uh, are addicted to drugs, addicted to pornography, addicted to all kinds of greed and materialism, issues of your mouth, issues of your head and your thinking, pursuing everything else. And what did that bring us? Nothing but despair and destruction. But Jesus came that you might have life, and that life is found in the Good Shepherd. We should be a church where people see us and what do they say? They're following their shepherd. They're following him. Wherever he says, they go. And they follow him to the life of abundance. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never, ever entered into that covenant relationship with that shepherd. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, I've never followed that. I thought I was on my own. Do the best job you can. I will tell you today, you will never, ever experience abundance, contentment, joy, peace, patience, all those things, goodness, all the fruits of the Spirit. You will never experience those. Even if you try your whole life to achieve them, you will never accomplish it without the Good Shepherd leading your way. 
And it begins by going and saying, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow. I'm sorry. I want to follow you. Sorry. I want to follow you. That's where it begins. It begins by following that good shepherd. The application is the same. Follow the good shepherd. I will tell you, our lives would be so less filled with the problems that we have if we would just follow the Good Shepherd. Because we, like sheep, have gone astray and we find ourselves in the trouble. You never hear of a shepherd leading his flock to trouble, especially not the good ones or the preeminent one. And we see that finally, as I get back into this, it involves our salvation. You need to understand that when we follow the Good Shepherd, He doesn't just lead us to food. He doesn't just lead us to um, water and rest. But He leads us to salvation. Many of you have trusted the Good Shepherd as your, as, your, uh, as your guide and your leader, as your Savior. But it's time to live in light of that. Others of you need to turn once and for all and say, That Shepherd, Jesus Christ, will now be my Savior. It involves salvation, turning away from our sin. But what does it lead us to? Turn in your Bibles, one passage, to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. One of the most famous passages of Scripture. When you trust your life to Jesus Christ, David prophesies about the Good Shepherd and what the Good Shepherd does for you and I. This is what it says. David is declaring, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. It's an idea of contentment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You need to understand that sheep never lie down if they're spooked or if they're hungry. And this is showing again that they're completely at ease. The child of God is completely at ease when led by the shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. Verse 3, He restores my soul. There are some here today who are dealing with the agony of depression and issues of listening to the devil lead you and guide you to the ways of destruction. And what does He say? He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Not for your sake, but he says for his sake, which means he will do it. Because he is God, because he is the good shepherd, it is on his reputation that he continue to be the good shepherd. Thus it will be done. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you today are in the valley of the shadow of death. And if you are leading that life on your own and trying to make it happen on your own, you know what will happen? That shadow of death will follow you all the days of your life. But listen to what it says. When we have the shepherd with us, we will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He says, you prepare a table for me, before me in the presence of my enemies. The idea here is, man, is even when trouble comes, he lays out a table. He wants you to eat. When you are struggling in times of trial and temptation, the last thing you're thinking about is eating. He says that, this will be a calmingness, a calming nature to what he's doing in your life. The king Hezekiah, he looked out one day and he saw 185,000 Assyrians circling his kingdom. And he didn't know what to do. And the Bible says that he went and laid low before the Lord, asking the Lord to intervene. And then the most amazing part of it, I wish we could just sit there and exegete the Hebrew. It says that he went to bed. He went to to bed. Hezekiah was such a godly man that when he had petitioned the Lord, he said, all right, I've laid it before the Lord. Be anxious for nothing but by everything, prayer and supplication, request and placing our request before God. 
And what happens that next day? He wakes up. How can you sleep knowing your kingdom is going to be destroyed and you will be dead before breakfast? And yet he gave it to God, his good shepherd. And he wakes up the next morning and he sees 185,000 Assyrians dead because of the angel of the Lord. He gave it to God and God led him through his time of trial. He says, you anoint excuse me, my head with oil, my cup overflows. Listen to what he says. Surely goodness and mercy, it says love in the NIV. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Do you want goodness and love to follow you? Do you want it to pursue you? If that's the case, look at what it says. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You want goodness, love, and mercy? You want the fruits of the Spirit to be evident in your life? You start walking in the ways of the Lord. Start dwelling in His temple daily. Well, what do we do with all this? Let me close with this. It involves a proper response. Look at, uh, if you're in uh, Psalms, let me just read John 10, 19-21. At these words, after Jesus has declared all this, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to Him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You know, it's amazing, even in 2,000 years, that people still struggle with Jesus. They still are divided about Jesus. If you went to work and said, All right, let's get together before we go out to our work and do our workstations. Let me ask you a question today. What do you think about Jesus? What would be the response? You would have a divided group. You would have some that say, man, he's a lunatic. Others would say, man, he was just some liar. Others would say, he is Lord. And still today, people are divided about Jesus. But the question is, today, who are you going to side with? Are you going to side with Jesus as a good shepherd and follow his ways? Or are you going to sit there and say, you know what? He's just crazy. Can he really, who can say that a man who lived 2,000 years ago, who died on a wooden cross, that the blood that he shed on that cross would give me abundance of life and eternal life? How can you say that? You've lost your mind. Well, if you decide that way and respond that way, I can tell you there is a destination for you. And while you may not want to hear this this morning, that destination leads to a place called hell where there is eternal torment, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Jesus says, you don't have to live that way. See, that's the final way that the devil destroys us, is he gets us to go down the path, the pursuit of hell. And as a result of that, we find ourselves dying each day for an eternal destruction. But Jesus says, I can give you life and give it to the full. If you go to God and you say, you know what? I'm not going to follow the crowd, but I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus says that what God demonstrated His own love in us, in this, for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated that devotion that He had by dying for us. And it says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's my prayer today that someone in this place would be willing to confess their sins before God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we come before You. And Lord, I pray for that individual now who has never trusted You as their Savior. Father, I pray that 
as a result of what has been declared today, what has been proclaimed, your words, you saying that you are the good shepherd, that they would follow you. Father, I pray for that unbelieving heart right now. That, Lord, before they leave this place, that they would talk to someone. Father, I pray that they would grab me at the door on the way out. That they would talk with Keith or Scott or the el- one of the elders. Father, the people at the Welcome Center. There are so many of us who would desire to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Father, I pray that the Spirit would move in their hearts right now and begin to lead them to you. Father, we can't do it on our own. We are dependent on you. But Father, you say in the humility of our hearts, when we pursue you, we will find you. And Father, I pray that there's that heart today that will find you, that will trust you as their Savior. And Father, I pray for each of the people here that have already trusted you as their Savior. We've grown lax in following you, our shepherd. We find ourselves wandering away from the flock, saying, well, the flock will be there when I get back. And Father, I pray for our congregation. I pray that we will be a people who are known and characterized by obedience. Father, I pray for each of us this morning that we would be people that walk out of this place obeying You, trusting You, pursuing You. Father, I pray for a week in this week of Thanksgiving that the people in this place would spend more time with You than ever before that they would open up the Word and begin to read, that they would pray and rejoice of who you are and what you're doing in their life, and that they would lay their petitions before you. Father, that we would be a church that is dependent on you. But Lord, that means we've got to turn from our sin. We have to confess our sin. So Lord, even in the quietness of our hearts, I pray that confession would be going on. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would impact the hearts of each person here. Impact my heart to confess the sins, even those that I don't want to give up. That you would be honored. You are the good shepherd. You've done so good for us. You are so wonderful, so great. We sang, how great is our God. That greatness is seen in the life of abundance we have when we give our all to you. So Lord, we give it all to you this morning. We love you, and we desire nothing more than to follow you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, the good shepherd of the sheep, and all God's people said, Amen.